The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Mr. Chris Jordan. He's an internationally acclaimed award-winning photographer and artist whose works are exhibited and published worldwide. Mr. Jordan's work helps us see the impact of consumer culture and the impact of our unconscious behaviors. He takes mind-boggling statistics, the numbers and data that we can't possibly get our heads around, and turns them into visual language to feel more deeply about the things that matter. He attempts to answer the big question, which is how do we change the behaviors that are killing us and our planet? And on a hopeful note, his images confront the enormous power of humanity's collective will. Welcome, Chris. Thank you, Melinda. I'm happy to be here with you. Before we dive into some of your work, and I want to take a look at some of the individual pieces that you've done, as well as your fabulous film called Albatross, I just want to dive in a little bit about your background. How did you find your work? What's the trajectory of your work into photography? And how did you find the subject matter that you focus on? Well, I came from a family of artists. My mom was a piano teacher and quite a successful watercolor painter. And my dad was a photographer. And so I was always surrounded by this conversation just about visual things. And my dad taught me photography from quite a young age. But I had a fear of failing as a photographer. And so I, I made a, a sort of side trip into a career in the legal business for a while before I finally, at the age of 38, I found the courage to do what I love. Wow. So what kind of law did you practice? I was a a commercial litigator, meaning that I worked in law firms and just like on big environmental cases and big insurance cases and like totally soul deadening, mind deadening, giant business law stuff. Hmm. So when you were representing environmental issues, you probably had a little peek at what was going on environmentally. And were you representing the offender or the environment? Well, I did have a, a very deep peek into that whole world, and it was it was really chilling. What I was involved in is insurance litigation, and that's a, a strange whole business where imagine an environmental disaster happens, like a, an oil leak into the ground, and the company who did the oil leak is covered by insurance. And so they make a claim to their insurance company And at the same time, there's a lawsuit by the state or the federal government to clean up the disaster. And I was involved in that kind of litigation, representing the insurance companies. And it's the the insurance company always doesn't want to pay. Right. And so the insurance company is always blaming the polluter. So we are on the side of blaming the polluters. And it's kind of this this very uh, duplicitous world because the polluter is telling the insurance company that they were at fault, 
So trying to get insurance coverage at the same time as they're telling the state or the government that it was only an accident or something like that. Mm. And you know, with these cases, I don't think we do a good job at full cost accounting either. I know you did a body of work about Katrina, for example, and we saw the devastation there, but I don't think all of the issues or the, the full impact of that disaster could possibly be considered in a legal case. And I know that's not the topic of our discussion exactly, but I think through your images, you help us see a much greater impact. Oh, well, putting a value on our natural world and on human life, you know, that was always a really strange thing to, to experience in the legal business is, is what's the value of suffering? What's the value of pain? And what's the value of the loss of life of a loved one or the loss of an ecosystem? And we're, we're terrible at doing that. We only think of it in sort of business economic terms. But I remember a long time ago reading something that really moved me. It was the original people who were trying to set aside Yosemite as a national park. And they placed a value for all of the people of the future, the joy that all of those people would experience visiting this park and, and seeing its natural magnificence. And I can't remember what the number is, but it was like trillions of dollars of, of joy value for sort of in, infinitely into the future. Wow. Those are the kind of measures we don't see often enough. And to reflect on your work, the fact that we have these numbers and being in the field of public health, I see numbers all the time. And I have tried to present them as well basically, and the eyes start rolling back. I mean, we just cannot get our heads around some of the numbers that you try to visualize. Statistics like the number of plastic bottles used in the U.S. every five minutes, which as of 2007 were 2 million. Now with COVID and the fear of germs, I'm sure that number has skyrocketed. But I really appreciate the fact that you attempt to do this in a way that taps on our emotions. Oh, well, it's a fascinating thing to talk to brain scientists and sociologists who study the way we comprehend things. And humans can only comprehend numbers up into the thousands. But really, it's a much, much smaller number than that that we actually feel something about. And there's a, a fascinating, a, a horrific study that someone did where they showed a group of people a photograph of one starving child. And they said, how much of your money would you give to save this one starving child? And the average number was about $50. And then to a similar group, they showed a picture of two starving children and the number went down to $5. And wow. to the same group, if you show any number of children more than seven, then the amount of money that they will give goes down to zero. And so there's a radical difference in be between how we comprehend the number one versus the number two or the number seven or the number 10. And once we get into hundreds of thousands or millions or hundreds of millions, and then orders of magnitude above that, you know, talking about trillions of dollars being spent on this or that thing, it's many orders of magnitude beyond our ability to comprehend. And if we can't comprehend it, then we, we don't feel anything about it. And mm -hmm. in the absence of feeling, we're in a state of disconnection, and that's when atrocities can happen. Exactly. Well, I want to dive into different parts of your work over the years, 
But of course, I want to start with the albatross because it touches on what you just said about the one. You take us to Midway Island and we see these magnificent birds, but by your camera lens focusing on individual birds and the contents of their gut, we see these little pieces of plastic that ultimately led to their death. And I don't know about you, but I can imagine like the bottle caps. How many times have I screwed open a bottle cap, even on a gallon of milk, for example, but I've not considered what happens to that bottle cap. And so you take us to the very intimate consequence of that single bottle cap, but times those huge numbers. Well, that was one of the really powerful things that I saw about Midway, that it offered an opportunity to face this global issue, this massive, incomprehensibly huge issue of global plastic consumption and global plastic pollution in the world's oceans to face that on an intensely personal scale. And for the years before that, I had been traveling around and making photographs and making these large-scale artworks that tried to depict the enormity of these phenomena. And I, there was always a kind of disconnect that I, that I was a little bit dissatisfied with when, as an individual, when we look at a global phenomenon, we feel so small and we feel so insignificant. Like the, the phenomenon is just so huge. It feels like one person can't make a difference one way or another. And I craved a way to face that on a very personal scale. And there's something about kneeling over those birds, kneeling over their plastic filled carcasses. They lie dead on this incredibly remote Island the little handful of plastic that's inside their stomach tells the whole story. I didn't exactly. need like a Mount Everest of plastic to tell that story. Just those handfuls. It was like the tip of this vast iceberg just poking up in the most vulnerable and fragile and innocent place possible inside the stomachs of dead baby birds in their nests. Yeah. And I had seen your photographs years and years ago, but it wasn't until I listened to an interview that you did on a podcast, and then that led me to your website. And then I realized, oh my gosh, you've made this beautiful film free for all of us to see and move all of us to hopefully action. The other thing about this island, when I was watching the film, and we should probably let our listeners know that Midway Island is in the middle of the North Pacific Ocean, and it is, what, 2,000 miles from any landmass. And I kept thinking to myself, oh, he's going to be zooming in on this gyre of plastic. We're going to see where these birds are getting these pieces of plastic from. But instead, we never see the gyre. But you explain that actually these plastic bits are floating underneath the surface of the water. The birds dive in and retrieve those. And I keep thinking, oh, my God, how are we ever going to stop this infliction, we keep on making plastic, despite the horrors that we see. And I also thought, I'll bet the folks that maybe make the plastic, either they haven't seen the after effects, or maybe they think that these birds are expendable. Oh, well, that you just raised a whole bunch of issues we could talk about for a few hours. I know. <laughs> oh. Well, you know, the people who make the plastic do know about this stuff. And unfortunately, the more time 
you know, the older I get and the more I look into the phenomena of our world, the more I realize this incredibly strange phenomenon that I think we're all awaking to, which is that many of the people in charge of making major decisions in our world are not emotionally connected with selfhood and with love and with compassion. Mm-hmm. And so there's a huge industry, a billion dollar industry of a lot of very wealthy people who manufacture plastic and they know exactly how harmful it is and how toxic it is, not only to birds in the Pacific ocean, but to all of us through the way it leaches in, into food and so on. And those people actively hire lobbyists who lobby for minimal regulation of it and who look the other way. And that's just how the world works. And my own belief of it is that everybody craves to connect more deeply with selfhood, with love and compassion. And so my work is offered not with a judgment toward anybody, but simply as a sort of tool for feeling something, no matter who is the viewer. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with you. And we keep consuming objects, things. I think you also did a piece on how many shipping crates are coming into the United States. And I believe it was just at the port in Seattle. And you think, oh my gosh, like how much more can we possibly consume? And yet we're not very happy. And you also did a piece on, you know, how many opioids we take and Prozac and all of these mind numbing and pain numbing drugs that we take when really we need more connection to each other and our environment. And that really brings us so much joy when we can find the time to do it. Oh, well, and a big part of my own belief and my own practice is that like, we can't each solve these global problems. Like there's some degree of letting go that each of us has to do. We can do our own part, but we aren't going to be able to solve these global problems as individuals. But we can solve that problem. Like we can minimize our own consumption and not even for altruistic environmental reasons is just because it makes us happier. Mm, Exactly. Chris, we need to take one break because we're halfway through. So let me just remind our listeners that if you're just tuning in, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio and we are speaking with Mr. Chris Jordan, who is a fantastic artist and photographer helping us see and answer the big question, which is how do we change our behaviors that are killing us and the planet? And I know that my training is in science, but I too have a deep respect and love for the art world. And I try to blend the two because I think we need art to change the way we think and therefore change our policies. And I am convinced that numbers alone will not do it. And in 2010, you gave a talk at the Museum of Science in Boston, and you were introduced by an eighth grader. And I thought, wow, this eighth grader was impacted by you. And it's impossible to know the full ripple effects of our work. But one of the questions you had from the audience was, has your work changed any policies? And I wonder if you could speak to the power of art that you're aware of anyway, And if you've been contacted by some of the students that were in that audience or any other people who have seen your work and taken action because of it. Well, that was something that mattered to me a lot for a while early in my career. Like I wanted to know if my work was making a difference. And 
Of course, there's no real way to know other than just by anecdotal evidence of somebody saying it made a difference to me or it moved me or whatever. And it took me a few years to let go of that whole notion because not only is there no way to know and there's no way to ever measure whether it makes a difference or what a difference it made. And I have this, the sense that if someone comes and says that my work made a difference, probably that person had already, like the cup was already just about full and, and my work was the last drop that overflowed it. And so I got all the credit for it, but it might've been lots of other activists, lots of other conversations or influences in that person's life. And so the way I think about it is just, my job is just to do my work and really it's my own personal journey. And the artwork in a way is, is an artifact of that as it is for, for any artist. And I hope it makes a difference and I hope it, it makes a good difference. And really my own job is just to sort of shine the light out there. And there's so many other people doing the same thing in different ways. I mean, you and your program right now is shining a light in from another direction, but sort of toward the same intention. And, you know, there's another thing that let's just briefly talk about hope. That's a, an issue that's really dear to my heart. And it's such an important thing to talk about is this notion of having as do I have hope? People ask me that so often. And there's so much darkness in our world right now. And I know there's a lot of people feel hopeless. And I've done a lot of work, spiritual work, talking with spiritual leaders, spiritual teachers about what is hope and how do we have hope. And the most convincing thing that I've ever heard people say about hope is to let go of it. Because hope is sort of the same notion as wanting to find out if I make a difference in the world. It's a thing that is rooted in the future. Hope isn't in the present. It's, a, it's an imagining or a hope, a, a wishing or a, a kind of optimism that things are going to get better. And so if you're hopeful, then you think things are going to get better. And if you're hopeless, then you think things are going to get worse. And it's a disempowered state of mind because then our mind state is dependent on something that is out of our control is whether things get better or whether things get worse. And so what my teacher says is that hope and hopelessness are not opposites. They're siblings. They're almost identical twins. They're both disempowered states of mind and that the really empowered state of mind that we can all, we all have available all the time that is not dependent on anything happening in the future is love. And imagine a nurse on the battlefield at the end of a battle and the battle is lost and the nurse is going around. Hope is irrelevant, but that nurse can walk around and care for the people who are dying with all of her love in that moment. And so that's kind of how I think of the, like the, that's my mind state as I do my work it's just simply to do it with love and to let go of whether it makes any difference in the future or whether it changes uh, anything. Mm. You know, it's interesting that you bring love up because in the Albatross film, you speak about grief. 
being the other side of the coin of love. And grief comes from a place of losing something that we love. But developing that love comes from having relationships with the living world. And I liked your angle on that, because as I was sitting there with tears coming down, you know, my cheeks, I rethought the word grief, but also hope, as you just described. Mm. Well, grief, it's such a powerful experience. And it's like, if we, if we think of what is our sort of cultural goal, it's to, to me to, to save, to accomplish everything we wish and to step into a completely new world together. The way to do it is for us to collectively and each individually connect with love. And the challenge is to do that because love is just a word. And if we just say it, then that doesn't accomplish anything. The challenge is how do we feel love? How, How do we feel it in the marrow of our bones so that it becomes the foundation of our whole worldview and it becomes the the driving principle that births all of our behaviors. Mm-hmm. And that is, that's a real challenge is to connect that deeply with our love for the world, for ourself, for each other, and for all beings. And one way that I've discovered is through the power of grief. It, grief is a doorway that, that takes us directly there. Mm. And we are at a point in time where we are faced with such monumental, overwhelming issues. COVID was just the icing on the cake. You know, prior to that, we were all focused, and we should still be, of course, on climate change and what we can do. But, you know, in a note to me, you wrote that you really think that we're at a portal right now where we have a great opportunity to use these disasters to have positive change in the world. And you also spoke in one of your interviews about each thing that we do, rather than feeling helpless and having hope, each thing that we do is like the straw on the camel's back. And at some point, it's going to break and we're going to have the world that we hope for. Mm. Well, to me, the, the, the real transformation is a thing that happens inside of us. And I'm really interested in trying to find the, like the key that turns in that rusty lock, because I believe we're all, we're all open to, to connecting with love. Like we all crave it. It's our, I believe that's our fundamental state of being. It's how we're born. You know, all you have to do is, go to a nursery school and watch all of these little beings running around in, in a state of, of kind of ecstatic wonderment and joy. That's our fundamental state of being. And so how do we get back there? And this is why I'm so interested in grief is because I was always, I always thought, I think I, I was socialized just in a thousand different ways that grief is bad. It's like a bad feeling. It's something to be avoided or something to be gotten over over with if we feel it. 
And I think as a culture, we are grief averse. We're afraid of grief because, and especially because right now there's so much to grieve. There's so much being lost in our world right now. And each one of us is losing so much. And I think we live in a state of, of individual and collective fear that if we allow ourselves to feel our sadness for all that is being lost in the world, that we will just become sad forever. Like we'll be depressed, sad people from now on. And so we push our grief away. We hold it away and we all kind of pretend to be happy and live as a kind of facade and the problem with that is that grief, the, the part of ourself that feels grief is the same part of ourself that feels love, because that's what grief is. Grief is, is our loving self feeling sad that we lost something that we love. And so when we hold our grief at a distance, then our, the most essential state of our being, our loving self is also held off at a distance and we're in a fundamental state of disconnect. And that's why I believe it is so powerful and, and important for, for us to open ourselves to grief, like to liberate ourselves to grieve and take the risk of that sadness and see what happens to us. And what I discovered on Midway Island when I did that myself is that I didn't turn into a depressed, anxious, paralyzed person, that I was, I, I felt more alive than I've ever felt. And a great power and joy kind of birthed itself inside of me to do that artwork and, and make that film. Mm. We just have a minute left, and I want to make sure that all of our listeners know that the body of work that you've done is available at www.chrisjordan.com. And in case anyone thinks or wonders why we are talking about this on a food, health, and agriculture program, it's because all of these environmental issues that you illuminate are connected to our food system and our own well-being. Chris, do you have, in the in the minute remaining, do you have anything that you want to make sure our listeners know Hmm. I think the most important thing to pay attention to is that it, my deeply held belief is that the most important piece of activism that any of us can ever do in the world is to heal our own heart. Like that's where the transformative juice is. It's not out there. It's in here, inside each one of us. Mm. Very important message. And I, I have a quote from Bertolt Brecht that I love. He says, art is not a mirror held up to reality, but a hammer with which to shape it. And I think that your body of work is indeed actually both a mirror to reflect on our consumer culture and how it affects world populations, but it is indeed a hammer with which to shape it. And I hope that it does speak to our heart and move us collectively. There are many, many organizations that also give me hope and that we really are not alone in this. We are working together to have the world that would be so much more enjoyable to live in. 
So we've got to close, unfortunately, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Chris Jordan, internationally acclaimed award-winning photographer and artist whose works are exhibited and published worldwide. I'll provide links to both your film and your website, and I invite all of our listeners to dive in. Thank you so much for your time, Chris. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you, Melinda.